This is the new way we work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. We'll be back with season 10 of The New Way We Work next week. This week, we have a panel recorded at the Fast Company Innovation Festival in New York last fall. This discussion was one of my favorites from the festival. Fast Company editor Morgan Clendaniel spoke to Sarah Nelson, president of the Flight Attendants Union, Kristen Smalls, president of the Amazon Labor Union, and Sackett Sony, founder of the Resilience Force, about the future of the labor movement, how COVID changed workplaces, and the dynamic between employees and management. The three labor leaders explained the forces that led up to this new worker movement and share their insights on what's permanently changed for businesses and the economy. Take a listen. Hey everyone, how's it going? Yeah, okay, great. Um, so my name is Morgan Clendaniel. I am a deputy editor at FastCompany.com. Uh, I've worked at Fast Company for uh, a long time. I've been to many of these events. Uh, we have talked to many very fancy CEOs and people in the C-suites <laughs> and lots of uh, very important companies. Uh, but a thing I think we forget a lot is that uh, there are hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of workers at these companies who actually do the work at the companies that make them so interesting and important. And I think uh, both in the media and I think uh, you know in the world, we have often forgotten about those people. They have, they have gotten overlooked. And I think uh, they have decided to not be overlooked anymore in recent years. Uh, so, you know, obviously, if you've been following the news, huge uh, new organizing campaigns at Starbucks, Sarah has a shirt, at Amazon, uh, Delta at Delta Airlines, uh, Chipotle. Uh, you know, there was a huge strike at John Deere. There is maybe going to be a big strike on the railroads, maybe not, depending on who you ask. Uh, and so uh, it's a very uh, sort of important moment for uh, workers and labor. And this panel is called Employees Strike Back. And so we are talking to some of the employees who are doing the striking back. Uh, so just to introduce our guests uh, quickly, we have Sarah Nelson, the president of the AFA, Fast Company cover star, uh, and a very important uh, voice for workers and labor. Uh, we have Chris Smalls, who uh, organized the, yeah, <laughs> uh, started the Amazon Labor Union, organized uh, the JFK 8 uh, warehouse in Staten Island. And we have Sackett Sony, who works, uh, who uh, started, great, yeah, <laughs> let's applaud everyone. Uh, <laughs> Uh, who started a thing called Resilience Force, uh, which works with uh, sort of a new kind of worker, uh, these uh, often undocumented workers who follow around climate disasters and uh, clean up after them, sort of a new and sadly growing uh, workforce. Uh, so yeah, I guess sort of in reverse order, Sackett, why don't you tell us briefly about Resilience Force, uh, and then uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Um, I run Resilience Force, um, and we represent a new emerging workforce that climate change has created. Um, I started this work in the weeks after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, uh, when the Gulf Coast turned into America's largest construction site. Um, Katrina was supposed to have been a once in a hundred year storm, but since then we have had over $200 billion disasters. One of them just happened tragically uh, in Puerto Rico. Um, resilience workers are the people who uh, do the short-term and long-term repairs. They rebuild schools, 
homes. They're the ones who keep a tax base in place. Um, without them, cities fall apart after hurricanes, floods, and fires. And the resilience economy has now billions of dollars flowing in it, insurance money, uh, public money. But the people in the middle of it are often working for um, low or no wages with very little protection and very little safety. And so we do the work of protecting the workers, the workers who make recovery possible after climate disasters. Awesome. So Chris, I, clearly most people uh, know, know uh, your, you know, your big win, but uh, tell us a little about sort of like where ALU is now and, and what, what you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, right now we are continuing to organize within um, JFK for sure, uh, fighting for a contract, um, keeping that workplace environment engaged uh, with everything that's going on on the outside. We just had a huge uh, victory um, two weeks ago in court. Um, the NLRB has ruled to dismiss Amazon's objections and uh, ruled that we be certified. So we're just waiting on our certification so that we can force the company to pretty much come to the table and negotiate and bargain with us. Um, on the other hand, we have other campaigns that are launching. Um, Albany, uh, ALB1, upstate New York. So New York State is still uh, booming. And um, uh, the election is actually going to be next month, October 12th. So I'm on my way up there. Um, you know, after this event, I'll be up there uh, on the ground with those workers connecting. And um, some further news, we have uh, a campaign currently in Inland Empire, uh, Moreno Valley, outside of San Bernardino, California. So uh, we are officially bi-coastal and um, uh, we're expanding nationwide. We got inquiries that, that come in every day, I believe from our latest numbers, we've been contacted by over 800 buildings. Um, I'm sorry, 800 workers from all over the country. And um, I can't tell you how many different buildings that is yet, but I can tell you, um, Pretty much everybody's paying attention to the Amazon Labor Union, and um, I'm happy to be a part of that. Awesome. Sarah, uh, tell us what's happening at the AFA these days. Uh, the Association of Flight Attendants represents 50,000 flight attendants at 19 different airlines, and we have a big campaign at Delta Airlines. It's the last remaining uh, major airline without a union for flight attendants. Uh, but beyond that, we, we really believe that we're a part of the larger labor movement. That's why I'm repping ALU here and Starbucks workers and, um, uh, ready to talk about the rail worker, rail freight workers who've been fighting for a better deal. Um, but we, we really believe that by organizing and giving workers a voice, we're going to address the big issues of our time because very popular issues are not making it through uh, to solutions in Washington, and we've grown to this place where we think we're totally divided. Um, that's been a breakdown in unions and people actually having a voice and a breakdown in collective bargaining in this country. Um, so it's threatening our very democracy, it's threatening our way of life, and unchecked capitalism is no way to live. Great, mm -hmm. that's it, we're done. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so I, I, you know, as someone high up in the labor movement uh, who's been watching this and for, for a long time. Can you sort of contextualize this moment for us? Like, why, why do you think it's happening now? And, and what is, like, what can the labor movement do to coalesce this moment? Sure. So um, 
I mean, I think I said uh, when I was out at a rally with Chris out in Staten Island that this union is the answer to my prayers. I've been waiting for workers to wake up to our power. Uh, the corporate elite has money and control, but workers really have the power, generate all the power, generate all the wealth. Um, and, and the world doesn't turn without us. And so without our voice, we're really missing the whole purpose um, that we're all here. And uh, so we, we workers have to uh, form unions and have a way to fight back. You can't, you can't fight back when you're a single worker. And there's no CEO that would come to work without a contract. Um, so uh, every worker should have the same deal. And we have to organize in the tens of thousands. Why is this happening now, Morgan? It's happening because uh, before this pandemic, people were recognizing the massive inequality in their lives. And the, you started to see strike activity again, um, the teacher wave all across the the country, grocery workers, and um, you saw people fighting back. And then during the pandemic, everyone had a chance to stop and take a minute and say, I am working away my entire life. And not only am I doing that, working two and three jobs just to get by or working forced overtime um, that my company is making me work and so I can't be with my family, but they've sent me into unsafe conditions. So not only are we just a line item, we're also disposable. And so people are mad and that's why unions are popular now and that's why unions, labor unions that exist today, have to put all of our efforts into organizing. It, we're not going to change the politics if we don't organize people and give people the power to change the politics. Um, Chris, I mean, as someone who was just recently doing this on the ground uh, at Amazon, does that, how did you talk to the other workers uh, about the labor movement and about the need uh, for solidarity and, and organizing? Yeah. Um, like Sarah said, um, the pandemic definitely was a catalyst for um, a lot of these efforts that you're seeing now, especially with my journey uh, being fired in the middle of the pandemic, losing everything, my main source of income at Amazon, at Amazon being there for four and a half years uh, as a supervisor and realizing how disposable I was to the company after, you know, pouring my blood, sweat and tears into this company, um, you know, I think workers realize their value uh, being deemed as an essential worker. That means that we're a necessity. That means that the company needs us. And I think workers do not uh, want to go back to, obviously, what we were getting uh, pre-pandemic. And we realize our value is a lot more. So this moment right now uh, in labor is very uh, monumental. You know, um, there's a point of no return. You know, we have to realize that uh, what we've been getting how we've been treated um, is nowhere near what we rightfully deserve. So for workers to realize that and the, the efforts between, uh, you know, Amazon and Starbucks and, and all the others that are out there right now, um, we're making unionizing cool. And I think that's great. It's a good thing to see uh, the younger generation. It's a good thing to see uh, either the ones that came before us um, now adapt to the type of organizing that we're doing and the numbers don't lie. You know, I think uh, it just came out that 70% of America agrees that uh, everybody should be in a union. And I believe right here in New York City, uh, Amazon Labor Union, we represent 40% of that. Um, so, you know, we have to keep it going and um, we have uh, a lot of work to do. But I think that right now in this moment, um, everybody's up for it. Um. Second, I, you know, the workers you're working with are really sort of at the margin of, you know, labor law and, and everything else, what does organizing them look like? And what, how, do you, how do you have those conversations? Well, um, 
The workers I organize, resilience workers, are like farm workers of another era. They move around from place to place following fires, hurricanes, and floods. Um, when a hurricane hits, um, thousands or sometimes tens of thousands of homes at a time need to be saved overnight. Mayors need to keep their tax base in place. Parents need to put their kids back in schools that are flooded. So the pressure is high, and if repairs don't happen soon, um, towns will vanish. Municipalities go bankrupt and fall apart. So everybody's waiting for the workers. The workers are driving in and parking, usually in a Home Depot parking lot, sleeping in their cars, and working to help others come home even as they themselves are homeless, sleeping in the streets, in cars, um, or, uh, or sometimes in the very homes that they're rebuilding. So my organizing um, really takes place uh, deep in disaster zones, often in parking lots or in buildings that have fallen apart. Um, it's slow work. And even though these workers are in the margins of labor law, they are truly the center of recovery. Mm -hmm. These are people who are deeply proud. They have a vocation around what they do. Um, they believe they are, and in fact, they're right. They believe they are the white blood cells of America's preparation and recovery uh, in the climate era. We need them. And so we need them to be strong and secure. So a lot of this uh, in the last five years has been emerging that identity, emerging that, um, that um, deep sense of vocation, um, and bringing big companies to the table. As um, the amount of money has grown, there's been an enormous amount of industry consolidation. Private equity has bought up all the companies in this space. Yeah. And we're building these agreements between workers who, though they may be fragmented and disaggregated, they still deserve the equivalent of a contract with these companies, and they can get rights. Um, so that's where the organizing is. Um, we're talking a lot about the workers. Let's talk about bosses first. I mean, what do, like, what do CEOs need to know about what workers are feeling right now and what, um, you know, what is coming for them, I guess, uh, if, this movement, uh, if this movement continues. Actually, Sackett was getting a, a lot of the problem. Um, everything is becoming monetized, uh, financialized. It's moving to decision-making at, at Wall Street and in hedge funds, rather than in even the corporate boardrooms. Um, the CEOs actually have lost power uh, in this unchecked um, capitalism state. And so actually forming unions and fighting for the tools, um, the good jobs, the resources to be able to do our jobs, um, better consumer benefits, um, those are all things that unions provide. And frankly, we put power back in the hands of the CEO because the CEO gets to say, no, we can't do stock buybacks. We have to reinvest in the company, which means it's going to be better for the consumers, it's going to be better for the workers, and it's going to be better if that CEO is actually interested in running a good company. So that's, that, that's the first <laughs> question. Um, that has to be there. 
Um, but, you know, when I stood um, on March 18th of 2020 in the Airlines for America boardroom with five CEOs from the industry, and we talked about um, how to save the airline industry, um, some of the demands that we had on the table were to ban stock buybacks and to cap executive compensation. And they agreed to those. They didn't want to agree to neutrality and union organizing because we wouldn't <laughs> want to have long-term control from the unions. But. But they agreed to those things. Why did they agree to those things so quickly? Because they knew that they couldn't have the pressures from Wall Street in the middle of disaster. They wanted that taken off the table. And we made that happen. That was the union demand. So what CEOs need to know is that you're going to run a better company, you're going to have better success, and you're probably going to have more control of your company when you have unions on the property. Um, yeah, I mean, Chris, is that what you would say to Jeff Bezos if he was here? What, like, what, is, what does Jeff need to know? <laughs> Well, uh, I have a different perspective. <laughs> uh, Jeff, Jeff wouldn't last one, one minute in the room. You know, um, the on, honest um, thing about what CEOs uh, should expect is that, you know, uh, workers are coming. You know, workers is going to fight back. Yeah. We're not going to go away. We're not going to allow them to continue to sweep things under the rug anymore. You know, we've been very outspoken and very vocal with our organizing. And it's been effective, you know. Uh, Jeff Bezos ain't the CEO anymore. I don't even have to talk to him. I'm really focused on Jossie, who's been running his mouth. And um, <laughs> uh, this, this is, you know, once again, um, you know, we're close to home. You know, um, there, there was an event last week with all these CEOs in L.A., um, and I was able to walk up in there. So, you know, workers being in the same room, uh, workers getting their demands met, workers fighting back. And workers sending direct messages to the CEOs that enough is enough. We're not going to take uh, being mistreated anymore. We've been at their front doors, and we're going to continue to be at their front doors. But I, I, I'll keep it professional. <laughs> and I'm just going to continue to organize these workers and, uh, until we force these CEOs to come to the table. Yeah. Um, I mean, speaking of keeping it professional, I, uh, just... Uh, I'd like to know sort of about your process in like why you ended up an independent union. Is that, you know, Teamsters are working on Amazon, uh, the Bessemer Warehouse. Uh, why did you decide to go, go it alone as opposed to hooking up with an existing union? Well, I just think, you know, as an Amazon worker and um, the people I organize with, they're, they're Amazon workers. Um, we know the ins and outs of the company. Um, for us, it was a better path to our victory. Um, Amazon couldn't use the same traditional style tactics that they used um, with former established unions. Um, this is your actual workers in the building. You know, they can't say that we're third party. They can't say that I'm making a half a million dollar salary. They can't say um, that the union has a history of financial woes or whatever the case may be. They can't use the same things. And we, we thought that, uh, you know, as Amazon workers, that it, we know what our grievances are. We live the, the, the reality of our grievances uh, every day. So who better than us to organize ourselves? And it worked out, you know. Um, I know independent route is not uh, really um, common, but, um, you know, when it comes to Amazon being a different animal, um, being something that hasn't been unionized in 28 years, um, it's a... It's a a reason behind that, you know, the, the style that we had to use to organize was never been seen before. That's why a lot of people have a lot of questions about how we organize, you know, how our identity is. But uh, it works for us, you know, um, 
I think the way we went um, was the perfect way to do it. You know, independent, not being tied to a Democratic Party, not being tied to, um, you know, political views. We only kept our issues work related and it, it worked for the, uh, it resonated with the workers there. What, oh, I was going to ask you what sort of the broader labor movement has to learn from sort of the success of some of these independent unions and. Um, the same thing, you know, the same thing <laughs> I, the same thing I told Lindsey Graham, you know, it's not a left or a right thing. <laughs> it's a workers thing. And, uh, for us, you know, uh, the labor movement sometimes have to be held accountable. It's not wrong with saying that. It's not insane. Nothing wrong with saying that unions have to be held accountable. And I think right now, um, a lot of the efforts that I'm doing is forcing other leaders in the movement to take a stance that is outside of their comfort zone. And they can learn a lot from, you know, even the younger generation. You know? <laughs> yeah, uh, look, I've done uh, all kinds of new hire presentations and my union is a non-traditional union because we were um, formed by women, have been led by women. Um, and that is not common. And we kept our independence in that way. And that was really important because not only did we have to fight for our seat at the table with management, we also had to fight for uh, our, our place in the labor movement. And so while labor has been through this sort of 40-year um, wilderness time where we've talked about labor management peace and it's been about going behind a door and making a deal rather than really practicing what Chris is talking about, the whole labor movement really is the workers. And every single union constitution actually reflects that. If the workers understood that, they could actually rise up and uh, democratically take over their union. <laughs> Um, but, you know, that, that, is, that is really where our power comes from. And I say to people all the time, uh, you know, unions are not institutions. It's the hearts and souls of the people who are your coworkers. And um, you have to have the institution to roll through the tough times. You have to be able to keep that in place. Um, but we have had to fight every step of the way just to have our, the place that we're in. And so I, I think that that led us to being able to say that we were going to stand up for the federal workers who were locked out of work or forced to come to work without pay during the government shutdown in 2019. And flight attendants said, no, we're going to strike because we're not going to go to work in these conditions. It's increasingly unsafe for us. And we had a lot of people ask us, well, what about the pilots? And and we said, you know, well, the plane doesn't take off if the pilot doesn't fly it, but it also doesn't take off if flight attendants aren't there to staff it. Right. And so throughout the pandemic and with what Sackett is talking about, what, what's happening right now is there is an unearthing of who is doing the work and how that work is identified as valuable. And traditionally what has happened, even in the labor movement, is that the corporate elite have divided people by racism and sexism since the beginning of time. And there are certain jobs that have been defined as less because they have been defined as being held by women or people of color, migrants. And that just simply is not true. So this is what's happening in the labor movement today, is that people are starting to understand, if I'm going to get my worth, I have to stand up. I have to be a part of something bigger than myself. And as Chris and his coworkers put it, it was really just about, you know, we're all going through it, I think he said. Yeah. We all have stuff. Um, and we loved each other through it. And that's how we formed our union. Right. Um, second, I, uh, you say, if you go, go no, go ahead, please. Well, you asked what we would want um, CEOs to um, understand. And I, I, would, I would ask CEOs to consider 
a man named Mariano Alvarado, who I know very well. Um, this is a gentleman who was in the Florida panhandle, um, originally from Honduras, um, after Florida was hit by Hurricane Michael. Um, entire counties flattened, entire homes blown away from their foundations, entire schools reduced to rubble, and you know, uh, the, the, the sort of uh, recovery had to happen. Schools were six weeks away from reopening, and people had to come home and put their kids back in school. The recovery depended on people like Mariano. Now, um, it was raining one day. He wanted to take a break from the roof he was rebuilding, asked for that break um, because sheets of rain were coming down. And I think everybody here, who here would, in the supervisor's place, have given Mariano the right to come down off that roof? Everybody, right? Well, he wasn't allowed to come off that roof. He slipped, he hit his head. He was left for dead in front of a hospital. As an undocumented worker, he was not allowed entry into healthcare. Um, and he recovered fully and is now organizing other workers like him. Now, see, we need Mariano Alvarado to repair those roofs in Florida. Here in New York, you had uh, a hurricane come to Louisiana turn into a, um, uh, a tropical thunderstorm and flood basements in Brooklyn. You need Mariano Alvarado uh, to repair those, those basements. And so Mariano, to me, is a highly skilled worker. Mm -hmm. And see, the popular yeah. culture, I think, imagines that Mariano is just an extra pair of hands. Yeah. Uh, most people would refer to what he's doing as cleanup work. You see, that's, the, that's because when people of color and women do things, it's called cleanup work, Yeah. right? Um, <laughs> so I, I'm trying to reposition Mariano uh, in the eyes of CEOs and the investor community as a skilled and deeply responsible worker who, who you know, courageously tries to complete his work just as courageously as Sarah's members or, or Chris's members or those teachers in the schools yep. during, the, during the pandemic. And that's, that's the only shot we have at recovering um, and, um, and being okay in this really volatile era. Second, you said it best, clean up work. Who made the mess and who does the cleanup? <laughs> it's time for the women and people of color and young people to lead. That's right. Right? Right. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little, uh, you know, Chris, you mentioned that you just won a big case at the NLRB. Um, but I think, you know, we've seen in the Amazon campaigns at Starbucks uh, the uh, sort of consistent violation of, of labor laws and sort of poor enforcement thereof by the, by the government. How do you feel like... Uh, the administration and, and the sort of uh, infrastructure of labor law is, is working for you? Oh, man, I knew that was coming. <laughs> well, uh, obviously, you know, our organizing efforts, like Sarah said, you know, the workers and the organizations and unions and um, the moment that we're in right now, we're forcing politicians to do their job. You know, I had to call out a couple just to get them to come to a rally. I had to... Um, I, obviously, I did go to the White House, and I uh, 
I can tell you now, they didn't play my audio for a reason. <laughs> I didn't go in there just to shake hands and take pictures, you know. Um, there's some real problems that we're dealing with. And for the Biden administration, you know, uh, this NLRB is uh, really detrimental to um, our efforts. If we lose this administration in 24, I can tell you, all our efforts right now, all the court cases, all the hearings, they're out the window. Mm-hmm. The injunctions are out the window. So for us, um, forcing the this administration while they're in office, while they have some power to uh, do more for labor activists, to do more for unions, do more for the working class, um, that's only going to happen if we organize. So, um, you know, I'm going to call them out every time. I hope other people join me with that. You know, it has to be a collective. It can't just be the ALU or Starbucks workers. It has to be all of us as a part of the working class. And I think, um, you know, we all know the issues. You know, they delay. These corporations are going to delay. They're not going to recognize. So what can we do as workers? You know, we have to um, prepare ourselves. Whether that is going on strike, I hope so. I mean, I hope that we all come together one day and say, you know, what the hell with this? Um, also, uh, where's the, our tax dollars really going? You know, they can give $10 billion to Amazon for Jeff Bezos to fly his uh, penis rocket up to space, then they can, they can give $10 billion to the NLRB so that they can be funded to hire more staff to take on these cases that are happening all across the country. Um, Sarah, what's your sense of sort of... <laughs> I'm just going to move on. Uh, it's, uh, I think you should dig in. Yeah, I, <laughs> it does look like a penis. I don't know. You, you can't... It's, undeni- it's undeniable. Uh, I, I call it a dick yeah. uh, what, What's your sense of sort of, uh, you know, Biden has talked a lot of game about being the most pro-labor president, low bar, so like he could hit it and, uh, and not do that much. What, like, where do, you, where do you see them? I mean, incredibly low bar, although I, I want to just say that it's exactly what Chris said. I mean, we, we're, we're, only able, we're only able to just sort of have some grounding to be able to walk forward as opposed to an administration working completely against us, right? So I don't want to... I don't want to understate how important that is. But this administration, frankly, is risk averse. And we have to make the CEOs risk averse. We have to make the billionaires risk averse. Um, And so there's more that could be done. That strike that is happening in Alabama, Warrior Met, the coal miners who um, mine metallurgical coal that's used to make steel, to make wind turbines, to actually, um, you know, fight uh, climate change, actually. They, they have been on strike for 18 months, longest strike in the country. And uh, they not only had a really bad decision from an NLRB that's underfunded and have some bad people in that region that had to be walked back then by this administration, but it took tons and tons of effort by the labor movement to put pressure to get a good decision out there so that we didn't totally destroy the right to strike down there. But we need to have Marty Walsh do what he just did in freight rail and come in and say, Warrior Met, get to the table and let's settle this contract. These workers have been out long enough, and the strike needs to be over with. And we need to have the same thing happening. We need to have Biden calling Howard Schultz to the White House and saying, you're going to bargain right now. You've been acting like a criminal, um, denying your workers their rights. Um, So I'm going to call you here, and you're going to bargain with them, and we're going to get this done. And so we'd like to see more of that. As Chris said, well, they've got the power and the ability to do that. That has to be happening now. 
And people want someone to fight for them. When I tour around with um, Sean O'Brien, the new uh, Teamsters president, and Bernie Sanders, um, people go insane. And mostly young people go insane. They get so excited. You know why? Because Bernie tells them the truth. And he's out there fighting for them. People want someone to fight for them. And so I wish this administration would just take that to heart because it's not enough to just say we're pro-labor and to say that the government should be encouraging um, unions. Put your money where your mouth is and actually take those actions and take some risks. That's right. We have nothing to lose. The earth is burning while the dick rockets are spinning (laughs) off to the moon. Um, Zach, it's sorry to make you follow that. Uh, <laughs> what, like, I, I assume there's basically no regulation in sort of your, your space. Like, what, what, is the, what do you need the government to, well, to come in and do for you? Uh, I mean, look, um, you know, it's pretty simple and pretty basic. I mean, how many of you live in a home or a dwelling of some kind? <laughs> yeah. Well, then, you know, what you need is for that home to be secure because the next disaster can happen day after tomorrow. Most homes in the United States um, are not resilient. Most schools in the United States are not um, secure. They're not insured. We live in a calcified um, country that is not prepared and not adaptive to the future. Now, what it takes to be adaptive to the future is the kinds of workers I represent, resilience workers. But they're hanging by a thread, and even if they were fully protected, included in all of the civil rights and labor laws, uh, there wouldn't be enough of them. So what we really need the United States to do is build a million-person strong resilience force that works to make uh, every home and every school, every city secure, adaptive, resilient to the future, makes every homeowner and renter equally uh, resilient for the future, uh, so that when storms come, they don't bleed away their wealth trying to recover. It's, it's that simple, right? Um, we need this to be, whether it's a private or public workforce, well-paid, with all of the rights, respect, and a contract that workers deserve. It's really that simple. And the, the thing is that You know, there's so much futility about climate change and so much pessimism. The truth is 70% of the damage that climate change causes through disasters in the United States is avoidable. You just need to strengthen the infrastructure we have, make it better. Um, And that um, is ultimately what we need government to do. Um, The United States has been slow. It's lagging behind. um, and, And there's no reason why in this nation... Um, we have this problem. It's, it's an issue of political will. And yes, we need the workers to be strong, but we need more workers. We need them to be invested in. We need training programs. Um, we need people to move away from low-end, badly-paid service industry jobs um, and shift them into high-paid, secure, long-term careers in resilience. <clears throat> we need them to have choices. Jobs guarantee. That's yeah. right. <laughs> um, Chris, I want to ask you, you know, Amazon, huge company, uh, the, the bulk of the workers are in the warehouses and, and driving, but there are, you know, a lot of sort of white collar workers in Seattle and, and in other places. What, like, what does solidarity look like from those workers to you? Like, what's your ask for, for 
those people to help you get what you need? Yeah, well, they definitely have a role to play. You know, um, tech workers, uh, there's nothing stopping them. They actually have a direct communication line to upper management um, opposed to what we have in the warehouse. So for them, um, it's even more important that they speak up whenever they see, you know, us in the media, which is quite often complaining about the things that are happening in our warehouses and the working conditions. It's important that uh, they stand in solidarity. We're the ones that are on the front lines. We're the ones that are sick in the warehouse, losing our lives, getting injured, um, being mistreated, mis misplaced. And, uh, you know, they have to, the, the comfort of being able to work from home or work behind the computer desk or, you know, work in Seattle with corporate. And that's fine. You know, we, we respect the fact that they're able to do that. But at the same time, we need more voices to speak up. And uh, we've seen some of that uh, throughout the pandemic. We've seen uh, the women out there uh, sign petitions and uh, flag things as things progressed on the, the pandemic. But it's still uh, that wasn't enough. You know, we want them to also be out there on the picket lines with us, be out there demonstrating with us, show the bosses that they're not afraid to also step outside their comfort zone. And they stand in solidarity with the workers in the warehouses because we're the ones that come from that community. You know, Amazon sets up shop, you know, they lease these properties. They reap the benefits off of our backs, off of our communities. So it's a part of New York City, you know, JFK, Staten Island. There's no reason why Staten Island should be called the forgotten borough. That doesn't even make sense to me. And especially now you talk about, you know, this is go back in history. You know, people forgot. It's like Staten Island. Is Staten Island? Staten Island. <laughs> We organized in Staten Island where they call it Trump Island. They call it this. That, they call it that. It's where the Wu-Tang came from. A lot of good history over there. It's a lot of good history in Staten Island. And we put it back on the map. JFK 8 Staten Island is a worldwide trending topic, yeah. no matter what. So now it's really important that New York, New York City, we all buy in to what is going on, paying attention demonstrating, showing up for these workers when they call to action. You know, these things matter and also voicing your concerns. If you're in the tech industry, it's so easy for you to put together a petition, way easier than it is for us in the warehouse. So do that, stand in solidarity with your workers. That's the only way we're gonna be able to force these CEOs to really come to the table. Um, Sarah, I wanna give you the last word. Uh, but it's a, uh, so you know, I think we have an, how, how many people in this audience are in a union? Wow. Okay. So, you know, I imagine a lot of you have pretty comfortable jobs with nice benefits and, you know, good maternity leave and whatever else. What? Tell them why they should organize, even if, like, they are not a resilience worker or a warehouse worker. They're coming for all of us. And, uh, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's real. And um, you, you see it, um, a lot of people like to separate economic issues from social issues. And um, you'll hear people say, you know, I'm socially progressive and fiscally conservative or the other way around or whatever. You can't separate the two. So um, the Dobbs decision was about dehumanizing half of the workers in this country. It was about, um, it, it was about taking control and having control of people. And if you call jobs clean up jobs and you have people working in the shadows and um, you devalue or dehumanize um, those positions, that's what you can do. Tech workers, um, workers in, in white collar, 
Um, we have people, you can't do your work without having someone check your work. And unions are a check on everything. And if you're not busy organizing your union, forming your union, they're gonna run away with all of it because they're gonna keep going. The chart has gone through the roof on productivity. That means fewer of us doing more and more work while wages remain flat and more and more billionaires taking all of the wealth and all of the decision-making and moving it right out of any kind of democracy. There is no democracy when you have total control. Who has to answer to, uh, who, who do billionaires have to answer to? Chris Smalls. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and all of you. So if you think you're tired of taking it from the boss, I mean, I tell people all the time, if you're tired of pension defaults for Main Street and stock buybacks for Wall Street, build your union. That's right. If you believe healthcare is a human right, build your union. If you believe women are equal with men, build your union. And if you just want to tell the boss to kiss your ass, <laughs> build your union. <laughs> all right. Well, I want to thank you all for coming. I want to thank Sarah and Chris and Sackett so much. Um, there's another session in here later this afternoon. Uh, there are a bunch of sessions uh, upstairs uh, in the forum all afternoon uh, and uh, tons of networking upstairs. Uh, if you tag anything on social, use the hashtag FC Festival. And thank you all so much uh, for thank coming. Thank you, Morgan. Thank, thank you, you, all. you, Morgan. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. Thank you.